turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 16. Well, just tell you, there's there's something that's actually going on with my wife's eyesight. I don't I don't know if you've noticed this. I kind of noticed that we had some issues around the house where she was not being able to see far away, and then she was having trouble seeing close, and we're like, whoa, you know, what's going on? And she's like, got contacts, and she's buying, buying all these glasses, I don't know, like Dollar Tree or whatever, or something like that, and she's trying all these things, trying to trying to make things work, you know, and so she decided, well, it's time to go to the eye doctor again. She had just been in April, and so she goes in for this checkup, and uh, both her and the doctor were pretty startled by what he was discovering. Um, I know how to say this, but her eyesight is getting better. Like, not just a little bit better, a lot better. So you know how they have that visual acuity test? Well, she's actually improved both eyes like by 0.75, okay? That is pretty significant. So her eyesight is getting better. So the problem was is that the contacts and the glasses she was wearing, that was just making matters worse, okay? And so they had to make some changes, and all of a sudden she's, She's seeing better. And I, it was for me, it was just another confirmation. My wife just keeps getting better, you know? Okay? She just keeps getting better year by year. Even her eyesight's getting better. I mean, it doesn't get better than that, right? And so, you know, your eyesight, your ability to see that is so very important. You see, how we see, that actually affects all of life. Especially how you see yourself. How you see yourself, that, that has huge implications. For all of your life. You see, how we see life determines how we live life. And so I'd just like to ask you, how do you really see your life? How are you seeing these days? You know, uh, it's going to affect everything. Your relationships, what you do with your finances, how you invest your time. How you see life affects all of life. So how do different people see life? Some people see life as like a circus. Okay, I could relate to that time. My four kids going everywhere. Okay, some people see life as like a minefield. Okay, and there's certain places you want to try to avoid. And some people see life as a roller coaster. Others see life as a puzzle, a symphony, a dance. Even someone made a song about that, right? So there's lots of different ways people see life. But what metaphor or how would you describe your life? For instance, if you see life as a race, then really it's all about speed and efficiency, if you see life as a marathon, then, then life is really about just enduring it, right? Just gritting it out. Got the grimace on your face, and you're just trudging through, barely. And you're waiting, waiting for the next first aid station, and you're just a long way from the finish. If you see life as a party, then your highest value is going to be have as much fun as possible. If you see life as a game, then it's really it's all about winning. So you create the rules, and you figure out what winning is, and then you just go for it. If you see life is about gathering possessions, then you're going to spend just to acquire. You'll spend money that you don't even have because how you see life, you see life is about acquiring things, then you're going to spend or you're going to just keep buying things. So how do you view your life? I'd like you to really wrestle with that question this morning because how you view your life is going to affect all of your life. And we have come to an extremely profound passage of Scripture. When you come to Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 21, we're going to come to a place where we actually see how does Jesus see his life. And not only do we see how Jesus sees his life, 
we, we also find he actually describes how those who are going to truly follow him are to see their lives as well. So how did Jesus see his life? We don't have to guess. You don't have to make things up. You don't have to even wonder. He actually spells it out in verse 21. Now, remember from last week, as we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus asked his men, who do you say that I am? And Peter nailed it. He said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You're the promised Messiah. You are the fulfillment of the son, the eternal son of David. You're the one who is going to reign forever. And Jesus said, that is exactly right. In fact, you didn't figure this out on your own. My father actually revealed it to you. And not only did Jesus clearly identify who he is, he's the promised Christ, the Messiah. He also said, this is my mission. My mission is to build my church. Those whom I will call unto myself, my mission is to build my church. When you come to verse 21, he's now going to declare how he is going to accomplish his work. You're going to see, beginning in verse 21, how Jesus sees his life. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Jesus, I'm sure, just rattled these men because they had just heard about the fact that He's the Messiah. He said, that's right. That's who I am. I'm going to build my called out ones, my ecclesia, my church. And now he starts talking about I'm going to Jerusalem. They probably figured that that makes sense because their understanding of Messiah. And this is really what the rabbis taught. The scribes kept emphasizing is that the Messiah will come. And when he comes, he is basically going to execute judgment upon all unbelief. Specifically, they had the minds of the Romans, the pagans, the Gentiles. And he, at the same time, is going to be a triumphant military leader. And so when Jesus, when Jesus asked them, who am I? They say Messiah. They're thinking king, king of glory, king in power. And Jesus then says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. That part makes sense because the son of David should reign. And according to the scriptures, will reign from Jerusalem. But then he said the word suffer. It's like glass shattering. Suffer. That suffer Messiah. Now, there were prophecies given about Messiah and he would suffer. They never seemed to be able to reconcile those. In fact, they never even emphasized them. We do that today. We have our favorite type verses in Scripture. And so we kind of emphasize that. And there are other portions that we have a tendency to de-emphasize or omit altogether. Well, that's what they did. They had no concept that a Messiah must suffer. And yet Jesus says, I'm going to go to suffer. You ever heard about the passion of Christ? They talk about that at Easter. And did ever you ever like wonder, like, what's what's that? The passion of Christ, a passion play. And what is that? Well, the Greek word for suffer is pasco. It's where we get our word passion. It has the idea of suffering tremendously. When Jesus speaks of him being Messiah, he says, I am going to go to Jerusalem and I will suffer many things from the people that you would least likely to expect are going to cause suffering in the Messiah's life. The elders, the chief priests and the scribes. 
He doesn't actually talk about their different cliques, like Pharisees or Sadducees. He talks about the elders. And in Jerusalem, the elders there formed what is called the Sanhedrin. They had 71. They were kind of like rulers. They were the chief elders. They made all the judicial, legislative, executive decisions for Israel. And yet, because they were occupied by Rome... They always had to subject themselves to Rome. So, for instance, like if the Roman governor didn't think one of their ideas or decisions was such a good idea, he could always overrule them. Rome also held the power to say, no, you don't execute people. We'll kill people. Okay, but you won't. But there are records in history where actually the Romans in charge would allow the Jews to actually carry out an execution, like in the instance of sacrilege. So. So there was there was a little bit of opportunity for them to have some sort of power, but they were the ruling body. The elders, the chief priests, these are the ones who are running the temple, overseeing all the sacrifices, all the worship and the scribes. These are the leading lawyers of the day. They are the ones of the experts of the Old Testament. He says, I am going to suffer by the leadership's hands. The leadership of Israel will reject me. And not only will they reject me, elders, priests, scribes, they will kill me. I will be killed. They're actually going to bring me to death. The, you could just see him. Peter, the, all the disciples, like, what are, you ta- what are you talking about? And then he says, and I will be raised up. On the third day. This is the first of four times in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus now speaks specifically. He prophesies of his rejection, his suffering, his upcoming death, and that he is going to be raised again. He had alluded to this. Remember in the the sign of Jonah twice when the Pharisee scribes or religious leaders came up to him and said, hey, we demand a sign from you. He said, all right. You're not getting any sign but the sign of Jonah. What? The sign of Jonah? What, what does that mean? Well, now he's speaking real specifically. Let me tell you what that means. On the third day, I will rise again. Well, this, this was more than they could handle. They didn't, they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. Because, you see, you know how Jesus saw his life? Jesus saw his life as who for the joy set before him would endure the cross. You see, Jesus came with a purpose. He isn't haphazardly running around doing some miracles, passing on some good teaching, getting to a few sparring matches with some elders or scribes. He is fully intent on fulfilling the will of his father. That is why he came. He understands it explicitly and implicitly. He will not be deterred. He understands it so completely he can spell it out in great detail. But Peter and the rest of the guys who are gathering... At this time where Jesus just revealed that he's the Christ, they don't they hear about suffering and death and whoa. It's like they almost missed the part about this resurrection. I mean, they, they didn't have a category for that. What, what are you even talking about? And so look at this. Peter, the spokesperson. Remember, Jesus said, I'm going to call you rock. Remember, you're Petros. You're the rock. And so Peter, the rock. Verse 22, took him aside, look at this, and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Whoa. Peter, 
whether he's operating on his own initiative, which is certainly possible for Peter, or this was kind of like we have got the guys were gathering and said, we've got to stop Jesus. And he just he pulls Jesus aside. You need to know something. When you would yield yourself and you were following a rabbi, a teacher, a master, you never corrected him. You would never do what Peter does. He's breaking all protocol. And so he comes and he and he says, God forbid it. Like, Lord, be the Lord, be merciful to you that this would never happen to you. I don't know if Peter is realizing that if if you suffer, we suffer. You die. If we're linked up with you, we die. We don't want that. Or we don't know exactly what Peter's thinking. It's possible this is what's happening. Peter's like, Jesus just told him you're the rock. And upon your confession and who you are, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to use you to develop my church. I mean, that would have been quite the power trip for a guy like Peter who had basically run a little fishing business. And now Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on you and your confession. You know, when we, uh, when we think a little bit too much of ourselves, we have a tendency to do things that we shouldn't. Peter calls Jesus Lord and then rebukes him. You see that there? He's, he's pulling aside. He rebukes, literally tells Jesus how it is and how what he just said will not happen. You ever had that experience where you thought a little too highly of yourself, but you had it? I, I remember specifically an instance when I was in sixth grade and I was on a basketball team. I was never really the all-star. I was not the Matt Reynolds of my basketball team, okay? But I, uh, I played forward, and uh, I was much better on defense than offense. I didn't score a whole lot of points there. And, uh, and I'd gotten a pass. I was way out in the corner, not exactly sure how I got in there. And so what do you do when you're stuck, right? Well, you shoot, right? So I did. I launched that, and swish. <laughs> no, I felt like I had the touch, you know? I'm like, I got it, man. Just feed me the ball, you know? And so... The next play, we came back, and I'm playing forward. I'm supposed to be down by the basket, right? Oh, no. I'm not, I got the, I, I'm going to save my team. I can do this. Just give me the ball. So I'm standing up there where the guards are. I don't know how I got the ball. As soon as I got the ball, I turned, and I threw the ball in the general direction of the basket. And I clearly missed. I mean, by a long shot. You know, and I remember the coach just kind of like, what are you doing? You know what I'm saying? Because I thought, like, I had the touch. Finally, it all had come together for me as a little sixth grader, and now I had the touch. We have experiences like that. Peter's having one of those moments where he thinks he's got it figured out. And he rebukes Jesus and says, no way. Peter is thinking this way. It's kind of like chess. Did you, you anybody play chess? A few folks? What's, okay, we got a few folks. You know, what's the object of chess, man? It's kind of like the object of chess is the unspoken premise is to do this, is to save the king at all costs, Right? You're going to sacrifice pawns and bishops and knights. You'll even sacrifice your queen if it means keeping the king, right? That is kind of kingdom mentality. And Peter's like, no way. You're the king. We, we just nailed it. You just told us we're going to step in and make sure that what you just said doesn't happen. We will take care of it, Jesus. You see, Peter doesn't have a theology of suffering. Peter doesn't have in his understanding of life that that God would actually have his son or anyone for that matter suffer. And so he's going to confront him. Um, You know, does it sound familiar that 
you can have it all without any costs. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 4, there was an event, a series of them that took place. Remember the serpent, the devil himself, approached Jesus after 40 days when he'd been, in the, been in, walking around in the desert and he's fasting and praying right before he begins his public ministry. And he said, you know, Jesus, I see that you're hungry. Why don't you take these stones and turn them to bread? Feed yourself, feed the masses. And people will then just see just how relevant you are. Or Jesus denied that one. So he took him and placed him up on the pinnacle of the temple. And Satan said, hey, why don't you just throw yourself down there? Because it's even written in Scripture. God will keep you from harm. Just throw yourself down. Make a spectacle of yourself. And actually, people are expecting Messiah is going to do something like that. And the people will come flocking to you. Just do that. Jesus declined again. Remember then, he said, I know what you want. You want a kingdom. You want a people. You want a nation. I'll tell you what. I'll give it to you. All you have to do is something real simple. You just bow down before me. I will give you what you desire. You don't need no cross to have a crown. Just go my way. Does Peter's words have a little ring of familiarity from something that's already been uttered? Obviously they did. Look at Look what Jesus then says to Peter, verse 23. And he, speaking of Jesus, turned and said to Peter, locked in eye to eye, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Get behind me, Satan. He's not saying that that Peter now is demon possessed or he's Satan incarnate. But what he's saying is the words that you're speaking are the exact words that Satan would speak. You've become like his mouthpiece because you are no longer focused on God's interests. You're focusing on your own man's interests, what you want, how you think things should be done. I came to do the will of my father. And he says, you have become a stumbling block. Literally, this was the word scandalon. We would get a word scandal from. It, was actually, it actually spoke of a, a baited box. You know where you have that box? It's got the stick and it's got the bait. And when the animal would come in there, he'd knock that stick. The box would go down. Scandalon. That's what it is. It had been used in a figurative or a metaphorical sense of an obstacle. And Jesus says, you have become a scandalon. You, scandalon. you are a stumbling block to me Because you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. You see, every time we get focused on us, our here and now, our self-centeredness, what we want, how we think things should be done, and we fail to yield ourselves and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done, we become a stumbling block to what God is seeking to accomplish. Jesus sees it. He knows why he came. He came to redeem his people. Peter didn't understand it. Jesus had to speak strongly. You know, by the way, this is the strongest rebuke that Jesus ever gave to any of his men. We ought to pay pay real close attention to why he gave it. You see, Jesus has a purpose for why he came. On January 25th, 1993, there was a lady by the name of Carla Ardanji. She, a few months ago, had... Uh, discovered that she was pregnant, and so her husband were expecting this child, looking forward to it on a routine checkup. 
they found out that Carla had a very rare form of cancer. But the doctor said, you know, hey, listen, we can actually treat this with chemotherapy and operation, but we've got to move fast, and we have to begin with aborting that baby, okay? We've, we've got to move fast. We can save your life. Carla said, no, I won't do it. I will not do the surgery if it will affect my child. I will not go through the chemotherapy. I, I won't do it. And she didn't. A few months later, about four or five months later, she slipped into a coma. And when she did, they took that baby through cesarean section. The baby, three months premature, weighed 23 ounces. And Carla, the mother, died eight hours later. As Stefano Ardungi grows up, do you think that he will understand the sacrifice that his mother made for him to live? Do you think that he'll realize that she died so that he might have life? Do you think that Stefano will understand what sacrificial love really looks like? Indeed, he will. Friends, that is why Jesus has come. In fact, Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Us, selfish, self-centered, sinful, shaking our fist at God, ignoring him, totally occupied for ourselves, wrecking relationships, hurting other people, killing them. Christ dies for his people. Why? Because he loves them. He fulfilled the mission of his father. You see, how you see your life determines how you live life. And that was certainly true of Jesus. Jesus saw the purpose of him entering into humanity, where the word becomes flesh, so that he might redeem his people from their sin, that they might live with him and live in him forever and to experience the true joy of knowing the one true God throughout all eternity. But that would be only possible if God's justice was satisfied without compromising any aspect of it. Death is required for sin, and Jesus paid it all. Why? To fully manifest the love of the Father for his people. Well, this is how Jesus saw his life. But how does Jesus see the lives of his followers? Well, look at verse 24. By the way, before we dive in here, these words might sound pretty unfamiliar because they are not popular and oftentimes completely omitted when we talk about following Jesus. But Jesus is completely clear of what does it look like if you really are going to know me and follow me. All Jewish rabbis with their followers, they had kind of like they told them, these are my expectations. You want to follow me and be trained by me? Let me tell you what does that look like in your life? Well, Jesus does the exact same thing. He says, seriously, you want to follow me. You want to know my life. You don't want to experience my forgiveness. You want to know the joy of living in the will of the Father. You, you want to follow me? 
Well, then he's going to tell them, what does that look like? Beginning in verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, the mafetes, those who are learning from him, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Do you want to follow Jesus? Do you, do you want to be his people? He says, first thing you need to do is you need to, if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself. We are wired to live for self. Ever since Adam, we have had sin completely contort and destroy and twist our own desires so that it is no longer to live for the one who made us or to even enjoy relationship with God, but it is all about us. Self-centeredness, self-occupation, self-importance, the love of self. And he says, you have to learn to deny yourself. You have to die to self-will. This isn't like just imposing things to make your life miserable, like I'm denying myself, so I'm going to do really painful, hurtful things to myself because I'm denying myself. No. It, no, it has the idea that you deny self-will. And there's a progression that he's going to walk you through. I'd heard of um, Robert E. Lee was once approached by a mother who had a, a new son. She asked the, the great general, would you, would you be willing to bless my, my baby? So Robert E. Lee apparently takes this little baby, holds it, prays. And as he hands the baby back to his mother... He's apparently quoted as saying this. Teach him to deny himself. Here's a man who understood. If you're going to live for Christ, just like Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself. You have lust of the flesh. You have a drive and a desire to fulfill bodily appetites outside of the parameters in which God said this is healthy, holy, and wise. You have the lust of the eyes. You see things. You want things. You want accolades. You want the, the things that others have. You covet. We have this something called this boastful pride of life. We want to be look good. We're into self-glorification. We want to be seen as popular, successful. We've made our place in the world or left our mark. But Jesus says, but if you want to come after me, let us begin by denying yourself. And then he says, second... And this this would have been completely staggering for the disciples. He said, not only do you need to deny yourself, but to take up your cross. Now, the whole they knew what a cross was. We see crosses as nice jewelry. Where is earrings? People wear it. People get little tattoos with crosses on there. But the cross was always the Roman instrument of torture and slow execution, slow death. They had seen people being crucified. This, was, this is how Rome had a, just continually showed any signs of rebellion or insurrection, and they just crucify people. And sometimes they do it in mass, and they like to do it alongside roads, so as you walk by, you always saw these people that were being crucified, and they'd stay on these crosses, not for a couple hours, but they could keep them alive for several days. Agonizing, torture. When Jesus says you've got to take up your cross, not only do you deny yourself, but you have to put to death living for self. 
It's no longer your will, but God's will. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, this is going to be radical. Because there is an orientation that's all about you that has to be killed. It can't be like, well, let's see if we can work in you following me and you following your own desires. You can't have two masters. You've got to pick one. One or the other. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Oftentimes, we, people do hear this verse. They're like, Ooh, what is the cross? And so then they, they oh, my cross must be my unbelieving spouse. Or, you know, maybe you've got a cranky mother-in-law or whatever, and you kind of make these things up. Or maybe you have some sort of physical handicap. Or i got a rough work situation or whatever. And so he said, this, this is my cross to bear. But that is not what he's talking about here. The cross is putting to death self-will. You deny yourself. You Take up your cross. You embrace God's will for your life. And this is what discipleship is about. The whole bumper sticker, have you ever seen that bumper sticker that says, like, try Jesus? You know, like, life ain't working? Why don't you try Jesus? See if that works. Or why don't you just add Jesus to an already very busy life? He can help you. Kind of like a genie in the lamp sort of mentality. That is completely foreign to Jesus' understanding of following him. He isn't an option. You don't add him to a plethora of things that you got going in your life. It's literally you die to self, and now you completely live for him. And he says, if you want to come after me, he says, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and you must learn to follow me. You see, it is in following Jesus that we're filled with his presence. It is like, Lord... It's no longer about me. I, I really I want what you want. I want to go where you want me to go. My life is no longer about me. It's all about you. I want to follow you. And when we yield to him, it's like Paul writes about being filled with the spirit is literally we are yielded to God's filling our life. We follow him. We read his word. We understand that he is guiding and directing our path. We want what God wants, even when our flesh doesn't want to forgive We want to be rude. We've been hurt, so we're going to hurt others. When we don't want to sacrificially love, when we don't want to care, when we don't want to extend grace or mercy, we're like, you know what? Yeah, I'm feeling that, but I'm denying myself. I'm taking my cross. Lord, I'm following you. Make what you want a reality in my life. And it is an ongoing struggle. It is perhaps even an hourly decision. I will follow you. You lead I'll follow. But the great scandal in modern day Christendom is this. We are greatly uncomfortable and unfamiliar with these verses. And so you know what? We have like a thin veneer of respectable Christianity that we place over our life. It allows us to be respectable, but never uncomfortable. Because after all, we have these like little gods in our lives. And we don't want to disturb them. As long as we can kind of keep the tension between we follow Jesus here, but we do what we want pretty much for the rest of our life, and we kind of keep moving that way, we think we're okay. Jesus' words break in like a lightning bolt in a dark night, and he says, no. You want to come after me? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. I tell you, It it has to be all about him. The person of knowing Christ, his plan, his purpose, 
his priorities. There is such great joy and great freedom just living wholeheartedly, radically, just abandoned and given over to him. In fact, that's where life begins. But let's just let's just take it within context. In the context of Matthew 16, what has Jesus been talking about? I will build my what? Anybody remember? There we go. I will build my church. But think about the church. Think about the people like in the church, not necessarily our church, but in all sorts of churches. I mean, there's people that are selfish, right? Think a lot about themselves. And I'm not just talking about me, but look around, but pull up a mirror. Whoa, we we have a way and a tendency to dismiss narrow minded, unforgiving people. Why? Because we're narrow minded and unforgiving. We don't like something didn't go our way. We didn't get what we want. We're not. I wanted to do this. They're not. I'm leaving. Pulling out. Well, in the context of, of what he's saying here. We deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. That actually gets started in his church. We're living in a society, Christian culture, that says, yeah, I love Jesus. I, just, I, want, I don't want anything to do with his church. Okay? So I won't be involved and I'll exclude myself. I'll pursue spirituality my own way. Sounds good, right? I love Jesus, but I'm just not going to be involved with his people. Or I'll only be involved with his people on my terms. That is not following Jesus on his terms. He says, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, you come follow me. I will build my church, but my church will be built when my people are yielded to me. That instead of like, oh, I don't like you anymore, I don't like you anymore, and you find out you hardly have any friends because everybody's offended you somewhere along the way, you're like, you know what? I'm going to forgive and I'm going to live graciously. I'm going to put love in action. I'm going to embody 1 Corinthians 13 by the power of the Spirit of God. And I'm going to see Jesus build his church in me. And so Jesus says, really, if you want to follow me, this is what it looks like. Now, there's some huge dangers to this. And Jesus is going to speak of them in verses 25 and 26. He says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is totally contrary to how we think. We think, hey, it's all about self-protection, self-preservation. If we can preserve our life, insulate our life, have enough money in the bank account, have enough security, status, protection, that we will find our life and we'll experience it. And Jesus says, actually, it's the exact opposite. You've got to come to your place where you say, Lord, I am willing to lose my life for your sake. When we freely just yield ourselves and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. That's when we begin to experience life. You see, the truth of the cross is this. It is only to dying to self that we can finally live. It is only to, when we come to the place of dying to self that we can truly live. Like, for instance, in marriage. Get the idea that I'm going to get married and all my needs will be met, right? It'll be great. It's all about me. In actuality, whether it takes you two hours or two days or two weeks, you realize, hey, my plan ain't working so well. Why? Because that's not God's plan. Did you want life? Yeah, I really wanted life. That's why I got married. I managed to get this girl to marry me. Can you believe it? 
Why am I not experiencing life? Because you've not died to self. You see, when we die to self, we can finally live. How about parenting? You know, isn't parenting difficult? Challenging? And you're and like, how come it's not working? How come I can't ever engage the heart of my children? How come they don't like me? How come I don't like them? This isn't my experience, but I've, I've heard others that I can read faces. Why? Because you're living for yourself. You haven't died to yourself, but when you die to yourself, then you're really able to live, live for others like your children. You want to fulfill your calling at work? Die to self. Lord, I'm alive to you. Your calling in the church, our community. Let me tell you, all ministry requires this mindset, death to self, so that you might experience the life of Christ. But you've got to come to Jesus on his terms. There's also another temptation. Look what he says here. Not only are we about self-preservation, and Jesus says that is a great deterrent to true discipleship. Verse 26, the love of wealth over the worship of God. Verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Here now he's talking about someone whose whole orientation is about wealth. Friends, if it's all about money to you, all about how I can just get ahead and I, oh, if I can just have this and I can afford this and I'll be able to provide this. And we have the idea that if I can just make enough money, I'll be able to support and do all the different things that I want to do. Jesus says that is a great deterrent from you following me. He says, think about it. What will it profit a man if you gain the whole world? Here's kind of like a hypothetical situation. What if you were truly a great business person? So good that you were able to buy the whole world. You got it. You gained the whole world. It actually belonged to you. You were just, I mean, Donald Trump, magnificently magnified. All right? Imagine what that would be like. But you got the whole world in your hand. But you find that you've lost your soul. What will that profit it? What will you give in exchange for your soul? The problem isn't that you're thinking too little of yourself. It's thinking that you're, you're thinking too highly of yourself and that you have not realized how great your soul is before God and that your soul endures throughout eternity. Your body is just for this lifetime and it is falling apart. Jesus is saying, listen, if, if it's all about money and about gaining wealth, you're going to miss following me. Let me just ask you, how are you really doing with God? If you ask that question yourself, just go look to see where your money goes. I hope you track it. Maybe do a quicken program or you kind of look at your checkbook. Does, is your money pretty much all, all oriented about you or, or do you actually see? No, there's clear indication that I'm, I'm living because I'm giving to God. Jesus says, you know what? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Seriously, you're going to just try to make all this money and you're willing to give it up? Well, there's a lot of people in our world that are saying, yeah, that's right. If I can just attain wealth. Well, Jesus says there's going to be a time of great reckoning that will happen. Verse 27. For the Son of Man, and he's speaking of himself, both of his humility and his humanity, but the fact that the Son of Man, like from the book of Daniel, this great and glorious eternal Son, 
He is going to come in the glory of his father. They're going to see Jesus in all his splendor and his magnificence with his angels, speaking of his deity, and he will then repay every man according to his deeds. God, through Christ, is going to recompense. He's going to pay back every person according to their deeds. If you live for God, you really saw, hey, whatever I've got, Lord, it's yours. You're going to be rewarded. You will be repaid. There is great glory. There's just like the crowns that we just sing about here in our worship song. That will be the reality of your life. You're going to receive great joy and splendor in the presence of the king because you love him and you yield yourselves up to him. Because your deeds will reflect that in this life. On the other hand, if you thought little of God, you never bothered to submit to him. The whole idea of discipleship was foreign to you. You really didn't want what God wants. Your deeds will reflect that. Your deeds will reflect that life is all about you. And guess what? You will be rewarded for your pursuits. But it won't be a reward like, hey, good job. It'll be judgment. Because life is only found in knowing Christ. God made you for himself. And if you refused him, you lived in rebellion all your life against him, and your deeds reflect that, he says, you will be repaid every single person for your deeds. Well, Jesus was basically underscoring this point. Our deeds reveal our devotion. Deeds, your actions, attitudes, your willingness to love, your willingness to serve, help, how you care for people, your willingness to forgive, actually involved in doing things. Your deeds reveal your devotion. And Jesus says, your deeds, if you know me and you're trusting me, you're yielded to me, you're denying yourself, taking up your cross, you're following me, they're going to send a clear message. You love me and you will be rewarded. Well, I'm sure for the disciples, they were just like, oh my, Jesus. What you're calling us to is, is radical. And Jesus seems to even know they're thinking that. And so in verse 28, he says, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming to his kingdom. And what he's saying is that there are some of you standing here that are going to see a preview of my glory. You're going to see me in my splendor. In fact, six days from now, they'll do just that. So what Jesus is going to do, he's saying, listen, I know what I've called you to do is is radical. It completely goes against the grain of society. In fact, it it requires you to have death to self. It may even require you to die. But let me assure you, I am the king of glory. And some of you, you're even going to see it in your lifetime. So, friends, what will it be for you? How do you see your life? Honestly, See, the truth of the cross is this. It's only in dying to self that we can really live. Paul said this. I've kind of summarized my mission in one verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So honestly, this Christmas season, where are you? Are you an admirer of Jesus 
and the truth of Scripture? Or are you a follower? There's a huge difference. An admirer will stick around as long as the going is good. But a follower is in it for the long haul. And so what does it really mean when you say Jesus is my Lord and my Savior? Jesus basically presents two approaches to life. Will you deny yourself? Or are you going to live for yourself? Will you take up your cross? Or will you ignore the cross? Will you follow Christ? Or will you just follow the world? Will you lose your life for his sake? Or will you try to save your life for your own sake? Will you forsake the world? Or will you attempt to gain the world? Will you keep your soul? Or will you lose your soul? Will you share his reward and glory? Or will you lose his reward and glory? Will you eternally know the fullness of Christ and his mission? Or will you suffer eternal loss apart from him? So let me ask you, how do you see your life? For the Christian, they see their life as fully given over to Christ. I tell you, there's such great joy, freedom, delight, courage, power, strength, his spirit flowing through us. When we say, I'm just fully your man, or if you're a lady, I'm, I'm fully your woman. Accomplish your work in me. Let me just tell you my prayer for myself and for all of us in Fellowship Bible Church. That this Christmas and the year to come, people will see that we have a great love for Christ and a great love for others. That we are living beyond ourselves because we're not living for ourselves. We are living for him. And friends, let me assure you, if this is your mindset, this is how you see your life, one day you will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. So how we see life determines how we live life. And Jesus said this, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing passage of Scripture. You have gripped our full attention. You have broken through chaos, confusion, distraction. That we might think about the most important issue of life. And that is, do we really know you? And are we following your son? And so, Father, for those who may be here, perhaps they have realized that they've been an admirer of truth and not a follower of your son. Perhaps they realize they've pretty much just done their own program and there's great cost to such a life. But they've been convicted of their sin and they are turning to you. And so would they just even pray with me and say, Lord, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I see that I'm a sinner. This morning, I trust your son, Jesus, as the Savior. I understand now he died so that I might have life. I get it. And I trust you. And Lord, for all of us, help us to remember this Christmas season. But with the coming of Christ, there is the coming of life. But life begins when we trust him, turning from self and experiencing the joy of walking with the Savior and knowing his life and his love. And so, Father, we commit our way to you. 
Would you do your work through us for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name.